Stream the show on demand at KetchikanRadio.com. You could even do it now. Yep. It's Brittany Rickard. You're listening to First City Forum. I'm going to be your new Thursday host, hopefully focusing on some historic stuff and the culture of Ketchikan. It's going to be a really good time. Today, we have Bill and Catherine Tatsuda in the studio. Hi, Brittany. How are you doing, Kat? I'm doing really well. Yes. I'm excited to be here to help you with your very first show of hosting First City Forum live. I know. It's a little nerve-wracking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We were spending a lot of time beforehand just going over how to run the board, how to put things all in the right places. So we'll see. We shall see how it goes. If we have technical difficulties, bear with us. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And that's highly possible. Highly possible. Awesome. Take it away, Brittany. Okay. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about Tatsudas Mm -hmm. and the history, which is going to be really fun for me because as we were talking about earlier, I was not here when Tatsudas was here. I barely know anything about it except for what I've talked to you about. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to be very fun and informative for me because I'm fresh ears. Yeah. So when did you get to catch a can? I got to catch a can in November of 2020, which I think you said was about six months yeah, eight months. Yeah, six months, like six, seven months, something like that. Yeah. So I didn't even get to see it. Yeah, you never ever were even went into it. And I knew I knew your last name was Tatsuda, and I because we worked together. Right. And then um, I was seeing these stickers everywhere, and I was like, "What is Tatsuda?" <laughs> and then everybody was like so sad when I brought it up and I'm like it seems like everybody loves it and then they told me about the rock slide and everything I was like that's so sad yeah yeah we were a staple here in the community for uh, you know for 104-ish years 104 yes yeah that is insane so who who start can you tell me the story of like how the store became yes where I'm gonna turn a lot of this over to my dad um, so he's getting some radio time this week this is pretty <laughs> exciting hi dad yeah. yeah we were here earlier uh, <laughs> this week anyway okay let's go back um, my grandparents are both from Japan and my grandfather I think he was born in 1888 and he moved to Ketchikan 1904. So he was like 16 years old when he came to the United States. Um, he ended up in Ketchikan working at the cannery. And that's how a lot of people got here. But back then they used to come and work the season with the cannery. They would load all the canned salmon and the crew back on the ship and they'd all go back south in the winter. So he stayed. He decided to stay. Not only that, he he quit his job because he got mad at the foreman and... <laughs> Threw down his broom and walked off the job. So then he was in Ketchikan unemployed. So he started going, he started hand trolling. Back then, hand trolling was rowing the boat. And uh, they didn't have big commercial gear. They just had like tree branches and twine. Oh my gosh. They rowed the boat. They camped out on the beach out at Bond Bay. There's a nice beach out there. And then once a day, the tenders would come by and buy his fish. And and, um, they would not buy white king salmon. They just, you know, people would not believe it was salmon because it was white meat. 
So I can just see him, you know, this Japanese guy out there with a big jar of soy sauce and eating <laughs> White King. And, and, and he probably had a sack of rice, too. So Can you tell people where Bond Bay is, for those who don't know? Well, Bond Bay's uh, on the other side of Beam Canal, uh, across from Clover Pass. Oh, okay. And uh, there's Camino Point, and it's, it's close. It's this next point up from uh, Camino Point going up Beam Canal. And there's a nice sandy beach. If you've ever been up there, there's a nice sandy beach up there. And that's where they lived, on the beach. So that was, you know, that was also obviously seasonal work. And then eventually he, he got a job uh, on the mail boat. And, you know, and I'm telling all these stories like second, third hand. So yes, they, right, right, right. They, they might <laughs> we not be We weren't there, just going to say. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there yet. In fact, I, I'm third generation. So, okay. you know, who knows how, what these story, the truth of them is. <laughs> it's all completely 100% true. We, we yeah. just know it. <laughs> so he got a job on the mailboat as a cook. And, you know, from Japan, you know, his cooking was obviously a little different than, right. than, <laughs> than the Americans were used to. So they, they didn't really like his cooking, except one day he made boiled eggs, and they ate it. Oh, so, like, we can get behind this. Yeah. <laughs> so he made boiled eggs every day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> every day until they fired him. Oh, did they fire him because of the boiled eggs? Uh, I don't know, but obviously he wasn't that great a cook. Oh, yeah. no. So, He's not well suited for this position. <laughs> so he wasn't really good. You know, he, he didn't do that well at the cannery because the foreman didn't like the way he swept the floor and uh, didn't do well as a cook. But, you know, one thing he was good at was gambling. And I don't ask me why. Oh, but he was talent. He yeah. was good at gambling and he won property. And okay. so he won this, these three little lots on Stedman Street, and he, um, he cobbled them into a little business. He had a tobacco store. He had a card room, of course, <laughs> and he had a pool hall, and they were all together in this one building. So after a few years, he must have been feeling prosperous, sent back to Japan for a wife. And back then, I guess they did that. I guess, there's lots of stories about you know the Japanese who who did that. Yeah, there's. I read a book actually that was all about. I mean, this took place in Hawaii though, uh, and it was a normal thing to yeah for it was mail order brides. Yeah. you know, picture brides is what they were called. Yeah, they, they call like them an picture They're like bride. looking for. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and that yeah. was a really normal thing. Interesting. And so. The families in Japan got together and they found him a wife, my grandmother Sen. She was like 19 years old. Um, 1914, she came with a picture of my grandfather because they had never met. And she was already married because they had, she had to be married before she came or they would not let her into the country. You know, Asian women had to be married before they were allowed into the country. So they did a proxy wedding in Japan. She came with a marriage uh, certificate and a picture of my grandfather, and he met her at the dock in Seattle with a picture of her. And they came to Ketchikan. So they lived down on Stedman Street. She had to walk in the town to buy groceries, and eventually she started buying extra groceries and selling them to her neighbors because they were located, um, they were the closest store to Dearmont Street in, you know, Dearmont, Woodland, Park Avenue. Right. And, and a lot of people lived up there. And so they were the closest store. People could walk down Dearmont. And so they thought, ah, let's, let's start a grocery store. 
So she's actually the one who started the grocery store, 1916. Okay. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. When did Ketchikan come about? Do you guys know? That's pretty I, early on. A, I know it wasn't 19th. Yeah, about yeah. the turn of the century. Turn of the early, century. Yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. know what it was. 1904, and you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Ketchikan actually incorporated. So Tatsuda's yeah. really grew with, with Ketchikan. With the okay. community, yeah. Wow. I was just rereading that article that Dave Kiefer had written about the Tatsuda history, and he really dives into a lot of information and shares facts. And he said that when, you know, so my great-grandfather, my dad's grandfather, um, Jimmy, who's, who's the gentleman we've been speaking about, like I think Ketchikan was a size of 300 people, had 300 citizens, um, something like that, when he arrived here. And so it's, you know, it's grown pretty significantly. Substantially, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, they lived on, you want to tell about why they lived on Stedman Street and, and the, the history yeah. of a little bit well, about that? The Stedman Street, you know, side of uh, the bridge, the Crick Street Bridge, uh, was called Indian Town. And that's where the natives and the Asians and the non-whites more or less had to live. Okay. And uh, so they started their store in Indian Town, And uh, so a lot of their customers were Native Americans, and they were the only store in town, only grocery store in town, that allowed the natives to charge their groceries. And back then, that was the custom. You'd go to the store, you'd get what you wanted. The storekeeper would write it down, and then at the end of the month, you'd pay them. And Interesting. Okay, like an invoice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that yeah. happened a lot, not only on a monthly basis, but a seasonal basis. A lot of people were fishermen or loggers, and they would they would be fishing, and then they wouldn't get paid, wouldn't have any money till the end of the season. So they come in at the end of the season and pay. It's so, a big honor system to go by. <laughs> well, it was, you yeah. know. And, and back then, a person's word and their credit was really important. Right. Because if you didn't have credit... You didn't eat. I mean, it was yeah. it was a, it was about like that. But I, I've been told by, and I didn't know any of this stuff till later on in my life. But I've been told uh, by several native people that he was the only one that would allow natives to charge, and because of that, they did an awful lot of business mm -hmm. with natives. And so our store has always been connected with the native community M many of our friends and our best customers were native people mm -hmm. but we were also the closest store to thomas basin which which was where the the boats tied up and the fishermen um so the store was a success for many years and until 194 December 1941 when they bombed the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Before we get into that, let's talk about though. So the so Jimmy and Sen, um, you know, they had this business together. They were running the supermarket, and then they also grew a family. You know, how many kids did they have together? Well, they got along pretty well apparently because, because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they, they had eight or nine kids. I'm not positive if it was eight or nine. I, uh, yeah, but. Unfortunately, only five of them survived oh, no. into adulthood. Yeah, I think it was eight that they had. Eight that we know for yeah. sure. Um, two of the young boys, they had taken a trip in the 20s to Japan, back to Japan. They took the family. And two of the young boys died on that trip mm. for, I don't know, some kind of various diseases. Um, and then later on, one of the daughters, who was 17, going to... Ketchikan High School uh, 
got sick and died. And that was just about the time that the Pearl Harbor thing happened. Okay. But they had five children, uh, and they all survived, and they all did various things. My oldest uncle was became an attorney in Minneapolis, and my dad and his brother Jimmy um, worked at the store, kept the store going. And then my two, one aunt became a nurse, and the other one basically a homemaker. And uh, they've all raised families. Um, they've all done pretty well. They're all well-educated. So, um, you know, I think there's 15, uh, Jimmy had 15 grandchildren. And wow. we lost count 15. how many there are now. Wow, yeah. We lost count. I, know. <laughs> I have no, I have no idea. So, oh my I know it's really interesting. So they were here and they were working. You know, Jimmy had been here from 1904. Um, brought over and started a family, started a business. Was deeply ingrained in the community for nearly 40 years. Yeah, something like um, they had the store from 1916, and then in 19. 19- early 1942 after Pearl Harbor they were all apparently the government decided they were uh, might be spies and not apparently I mean yeah well, they decided they like, that they were spies yeah. Yeah. or wow. that they were dangerous not that not that they were spies Propaganda but they, but they were they were um, that they were dangerous and they you know and so it was President Roosevelt who signed the executive order with that all of the Japanese citizens of the west coast needed to evacuate um, and be put into internment camps um, and so that that happened in California and Oregon and Washington and also in Alaska, even though we weren't even a state at the time. Yeah, they, they were called relocation camps. But really, if you saw them, they had barbed wire and armed guards. And, uh, you know, some it, there were various reasons. First of all, you can imagine the hysteria. Um, because the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, then all of a sudden everyone was scared. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, obviously like today, it was, had a real racial connotations right. too, because, you know, we didn't look like all the other people. So anyone who looked Japanese, including the Chinese, yeah. I mean, oh, no. a- any Asian person became a target. Yeah. And, and it was kind of like what we're doing now with the, the people from the Middle East. It's the same kind of hysteria and fear. Um, so they took all the Japanese on the West Coast, which was about 100,000. Yeah, over 100,000 people. And put them in the relocation camps um, inland uh, in, some, in the Western states. My, a lot of my family was sent to Idaho. The camp. So they took them out of Alaska. Yes. Yeah, and there was a camp there called Minidoka. Uh, my grandfather was arrested the next day after Pearl Harbor. They actually came and took him away. First, I think they took him to Anchorage, and then they shipped him down to New Mexico with all the other first-generation Japanese men. They were all considered high-risk because they could be spies. Of course, when you think about it, he'd already lived in Ketchikan for 36 years. So did you have to be first generation for this? No, any. So up like so. If this happened today, if this happened today, um, it was anybody who had I think it was a quarter 
quarter percent or a quarter. What, I don't think it was any percentage. Okay. Yeah. So if this happened today, you know, I so I'm half Japanese and I'm very far removed from all of it, but I would be arrested and put into an internment camp oh as well as my children. Um, you know, and they're one eighth, I think, or one quarter Japanese. So it's, you know, so so the entire family, um, the entire Tatsuda family, as well as I believe there were 12 total families, uh, Japanese families that lived in Ketchikan at the time, on, all on Stedman Street there. There were about 100 individuals, actually, at the time. Yeah, and, wow. Uh, uh, half of them made it back after the war. A lot of them didn't have anything to come back to. Oh, right. Oh, they chose not to come back? Well, they well, didn't have anything to come the, back to. You know, mm-hmm. luckily, tattoos owned their real estate. And it's interesting because my grandparents were not allowed to own uh, property because of the various laws there were back then. But their children are all American citizens. So they put all the property okay. put all the property they bought in their children's name. I was gonna say, did this cause the store to shut down for a little bit or yeah. 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 What happened was on short notice, I think in April forty two, um, they said, Okay, you gotta you know, we're coming to get you so they had armed guards escort them onto a boat. Yeah, the family had I believe the all the families had about a week or so notice. Is that I don't know. Yeah, from the just the different histories that I've read, you know, with different families that were impacted and the different roles. So that's that's my understanding. I don't know how historically accurate that is, but um, yeah, it was short notice short though, notice. and they could take what they could carry. Yeah, oh. you could only bring one suitcase or something per person, and so you can imagine if you owned a grocery store and all of a sudden you got a week to leave, what do you do? You've got all this inventory. You know, you've got all your possessions. You can't right. take them. So I imagine, and I'm just guessing here, that they probably had a you know a big closing, closing out sale and sold as much of it as they could. And then I found out much later, like just a few years ago, that they had they took what was left and gave a lot of it to their customers who lived up on Deermont Street and Woodland Street. They just gave it to him and said, well, you know, we're going to be gone for who? We don't know if we're coming back. So they gave the food. And, and uh, a few years ago, an old guy came into the store. He was probably in his 80s. And he says he remembers when the Japanese had to leave. He was living with his single mother and his younger brother up on Woodland. And uh, he remembers that they got all this food for free. His mother was really appreciative of that. And he made a special trip in the Tatsudas to come and tell me that. And I didn't know. I had no idea that that had happened. And then thinking back on it, well, who was here? My grandfather had already been taken away. Uh, So it was my grandmother and my dad and my mother um, and possibly my Aunt Jean who were still here running the store. So it must have been my dad his name was Bill Tatsuda also, who gave all that food away. I see that. Those are the stories I love hearing about Ketchikan. Like, and why everybody asks me why I prefer here to like a city. That's an amazing story. And you know what is scary is that there is somebody still alive that was there when that happened. Like, you think that it happened so long ago. It's insane to think about. It was not that long ago. Not that long ago. No, not that long ago at all. Yeah. yeah. So um, so the family was, was shipped off 
and placed into internment camps. And so to answer your question, like what happened to the building, you want to talk about that, Dad, about what, what happened with that? Well, the, the first door was located on Stedman Street, directly across the street from the Inman Street stairs, which is right over here. Yeah, Epic we're like, stairway. we're literally about two buildings. We're one building over from um, from those Inman Street stairs, and then directly across the street from where we're talking was right the original? now was the original store. Yeah, yeah. there's three little lots there that <laughs> were cobbled, and there was a building there. Um, well, Inman Street is named after the Inman family. Because the father was, I think he was a boat builder or something like that. Anyway, so one of his sons and his son's family moved in to our store building, the living quarters, on the upper floor. So the building would be occupied. So it wasn't abandoned. So they, they did maintenance, they kept heat in the building, and they lived there. And, protect, and then... They protected all our belongings that were left there. So later, and it was at least four years later when mm -hmm. they were allowed to return, we had something to come back to. And, uh, and that was the advantage of living in Ketchikan because you had friends, you had people who knew you. Um, people here have always been willing to help. Well, we found that out. <laughs> we found that we out did. when our We had our own experiences with that, yeah. Um, anyways, this is going to be the crying show also. <laughs> Just going to share that. Well, and it's really important that, that when you say they had something to come back to. So um, several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, I was um, inside of Tatsuda's just at the front end by the check stands. Uh, and there was a couple that came into the store and they picked up the ad flyer and they looked at the name and they'd seen the name of the store from the outside. And they said, you know, is this a Japanese owned store? And I said, yeah, it is. This is going to make me super emotional. Um, and they're like, oh, wow, you know, and what's the history on it? And so I talked to them and I, I told them the history and how, you know, it had started so long ago. My, my great-grandfather and they had gotten sent away during World War II to the internment camps. And this couple's parents had experienced the same thing, but they had lived in California and they were farmers. And Calif Japanese farmers in California did not own their property. They didn't own the land that they were farming. They were leasing it, whatever. I I don't even remember what the term is, but and because um, when when they all had to get shipped away. So many of those farmers lost everything in California, and that's this couple's, um, you know, one of their, their parents had nothing to go back to. And they actually ended up returning to Japan to go be with their family for a period of time because they didn't have anything. And so, you know, the Tatsudas are very lucky um, and w have tremendous gratitude for the support of the people in the community who helped and protected yeah, we've we've always felt very fortunate to have lived in, in Ketchikan because we know that other people who were relocated who lived in large cities, they basically lost everything except what they could put in that suitcase um, because they were renters and they had no place to leave their stuff. Yeah. They, they had to leave it on the street, basically. So Ketchikan really took care of us. 
Ketchikan's an amazing place, and I don't want to get specific, but even the stuff that happened last year, all the things, Mm -hmm. made me realize that this community really has each other's backs. Mm Mm-hmm. We are going to take a quick break so we can all cry a little bit. Yes, so we're going to do that. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, um, and so, yeah, we're going to take a quick break and you're, you're going to listen to some commercials. Some commercials. And then before we come back live, um, we're going to listen to something special. Something very, very special. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. August has come and the rain's still falling Summer's still gone and the fall is calling Kept on the oil and the bill is rising Love to burn wood but the pile ain't drying I'm sick of the rain and I miss tattooers. Sick of the rain and I miss tattooers. Sick of the rain and I don't know where the sun is. I'm sick of the rain and I miss tattooers. Thank you. 
It is Brittany Rickard, your Thursday First City Forum host, with Catherine and Bill Tatsuda. That was an amazing song. I think that was my first time hearing it entirely. Joe showed me a snippet. And he is an amazing singer. Bill was saying that. He's such a, such so talented. Yeah. So that song was written, the lyrics were written by Dave Kiefer okay. somewhere, I think, in August of 2020. And he shared it to Facebook. Uh, and, you know, it was like, I wrote this song. And I read the lyrics. And then I bawled. <laughs> he surprised you with it. Yes, it was it was very much a surprise. And, and then I ran into Austin. Austin Hayes, who is an incredibly talented musician. He is, uh, he um, puts, he writes music. And I said, and I was like, hey, Austin, Dave Kiefer wrote this song about Tatsudas. Would you be up for putting it to music? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a great idea. And off he went. (laughs) (laughs) And then I didn't really hear back from him for, for many, many many, many months, you know, and then out of the blue, I get this email with from him with this, I mean, that absolutely gorgeous, emotional, beautiful, really meaningful song that was just so professionally done Um, and it was all done by local musicians so I just want to give a shout out so Austin so Dave Kiefer um, was a songwriter Austin Hayes put it to music he also played drums um, and piano and um, Tracy Brown is a producer and engineer. Vocals, of course, is from our very own Joe Williams. Acoustic and electric guitar was Colin McCormick. Chaz Gist played bass. Kim Henriksen um, played B3 organ. And then Dave Rubin was doing some backup vocals on there, as well as the played the alto saxophone. So they got together as a group of musicians. So there was and an army behind there was, the song. There was an army. <laughs> me behind that song and it's uh, just very deeply special and um, thank you for letting us share that with uh, you know today yeah I was so excited that Tracy said that we had it in the system he was like so eager to load it up yeah that's a great idea yes and I'm gonna say that that's the that's the first time you've heard that version the first time I've ever heard that song and <laughs> uh, it's just amazing and you know joe williams the fourth is mm-hmm. he's an amazing mm-hmm. talent and we are so lucky that he <laughs> moved to town <laughs> yeah but the other people on that are also you know catch can like I, they, they said a few years ago that we're one of the best small art towns in america yes and and, and you can see why because we have all this talent here well, and I agree, and not not to hate on Juno and make it about that. But <laughs> when I lived in Juno, there is there is a community there, but it's not like Ketchikan. And I'm a huge lover of the arts and a performer too. And so when I moved here, finding that they had such a strong arts community was amazing. I fell in love for a lot of reasons, but that specifically, and because of Jim Williams, he actually introduced me to that scene. So. That yeah, that's and we have a great arts community because it's nurtured and there's outlets and anybody who wants to participate and wants to do something really has that opportunity well, to do it. Well, the community supports it exactly. entirely. Yeah, like they're so yep. excited to see new people or anybody yep. ever. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> so we left 
we were talking about a lot about the history and I mean we could spend the whole time during the show talking about right. the history so I'm just going to cover some bases really fast and bring us up to more present day sure. but um, so the family was able to return after World War II and they um, returned and reopened their business in 1947 is that right dad? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so they were open for just about a year back in Ketchikan. No, not even close. They probably came back in late 46, but in January 47, their store burned down. Yeah. No, they could not catch a break. Right. <laughs> so Tatsunas has been through the ringer. Yes, and that's only 1947. Oh, no. I can tell you what, right? <laughs> so in that short period of time, they, you know, so they started a business, they grew a family, and then they had, you know, several tragedies happen with deaths of children. They were sent in, arrested, and sent to relocation camps and come back, reopen, trying to get settled, and they have a giant building fire. And so um, how did they, what happened after that building fire, Dad? Do you kind of know the story with that? Well, it's interesting because um, my uncle, who was the oldest child, had uh, a tobacco store down the hill from the original store, a store right next to Diaz Cafe. And he had a tobacco store there. Well, guess what? Uh, the tobacco store suddenly became a grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) And so they moved. Their second location was like 339 Stedman Street, which is pretty much across the street from the Salvation Army right now. Okay. Yeah, it's still there. It's the green building that's literally, it's it's on the south side of Diaz Cafe. So you've always stayed in like the same area, it sounds like. Yes. Okay, interesting. Yes, yeah. And so they reopened their grocery store. Yeah, and so I have pictures, I believe, from 1948 when they had their, their opening there. And you can see my two sisters Valerie and Laurel, who were, I don't know, they must have been two and four years old, standing in front of the store. Yeah, these two little darling, little dark-haired girls standing in front of the store with the big wooden barrels, and yeah, yeah, yeah. those and are great photos. That's the store I remember and the one I grew up with, because um, I wasn't born until December 47, so, so they opened that store right about the time um, I was born, and then we had that store till 1972. And uh, so, it, you know, and back then, and that's, that's the timing is when the pulp mill opened. And so there were lots of logging camps with, uh, that were cutting trees. And, and so they got into shipping groceries out to logging camps. People would send them, would mail them orders, and they would fill them and put them in boxes and pack them all up. And they would have chill boxes, frozen boxes, dry boxes, and... Two or three times a week, they take a load down to the mailboat, um, or they would fly them out to these camps, and that was a big part of the business. It kept them really busy because it was a lot more work selling groceries that way. But we still had the neighborhood. We still had all the people who lived up Deermont Woodland, uh, Park Avenue. We had the downtown people, and we had the Thomas Basin. So it was a busy little store. In fact, directly across from Thomas Basin were the fishermen tied up. Uh, I remember during the seining season, that was pretty much my job in high school, was putting all these boxes on a hand truck and, and pushing them across the street down onto the floats and taking them to the boats. And 
that was a full-time job for me. And the only thing, the biggest thing I remember about that was on a on a real wet, rainy day at minus tide, sliding down the ramp on my rear end. Oh no! <laughs> holding on for dear life to the hand truck. Those big metal hand trucks probably weighed 30 pounds by themselves. Plus, you know, you have 100 pounds of groceries on there. And I remember. In fact, I had more. I had a 100-pound sack of potatoes on there, too. Oh, geez. And the potatoes went into the water, and that's the first time I, I learned that potatoes float because <laughs> the 100-pound the sack was floating away. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that either. So. <laughs> now you know. Yeah. But that, that was pretty much how I grew up. I was a delivery guy, and you know, I, did, I hauled their freight for them as soon as I had my driver's license. So I grew up in the business. I was forced into it, actually. Oh, no. I didn't have, I didn't have, I remember seventh grade going, oh, I think I'll learn how to play the guitar. So one day after school, I didn't go down to the store to work, and my dad got home and said, well, where were you? And I said, well, I'm learning how to play the guitar. He said, well, okay, we'll go ahead and learn to play the guitar, but if you don't come to work after school, then you don't get lunch money. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so... <laughs> I tell people I was forced into the business. <laughs> and, you know, I can't complain. I was going to say, but are you happy about it? I kind of <laughs> learned a trade, you know, and, and by the time I went to college, I, I was actually a journeyman grocer when I, before I went to college. And I get there, and all these other kids had never worked in their lives. They had no clue how to work, you know, so. Yeah. And then I couldn't believe they were getting paid Back then, minimum wage was $1.25 an hour. Wow. wow. So the, these college students who were paying tuition <clears throat> had these jobs after, you know, and they were working for $1.25 an hour. And I went, wait a minute. They go and work eight hours and they get paid $10. What are they thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you're paying all this tuition to be at college and you're working eight hours and getting $10. Mm-hmm. Didn't make any sense to me. So I always came back home. To work because we made good money up in Alaska <laughs> at the family business. Yeah, so there was a fire that happened in in 1972, and um, and prior to the fire, there was already plans though that were in the works or at least whispers of plans to build this to build a larger uh, grocery store. And is that right? My dad is is thinking heavily on this. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we were already talking about it. I. Th- think um my dad i think had already bought the lot where the parking lot was at tatsudas mm-hmm. and and then later he bought more lots from new england fish company which was across the street um but the timing was because i just come back from college i'd been back home for about a year and then um there was a blackout well, it's kind of a brownout of the power in Ketchikan. And uh, what happened was the furnace in the store, because of the brownout, the, the fire went out in the furnace, but the brownout kept the, the oil pump pumping and the firebox was still hot. So this oil that was being pumped into the firebox was vaporizing. So then when the power came back on, uh, it just blew out of the furnace and caught things on fire that were around the furnace. And then, uh, but fortunately, the brownout had caused an alarm at Schoenbar Middle School to go off. So the fire department had responded and they were 
coming back to the station from Schoenbar down Dearmont Street. So by the time my cousin, they were here in the summer, and they, by the time they called the fire department, uh, the fire trucks were driving by the store. <laughs> so it was perfect timing. So they were, they were there immediately. And so they're able to get in there, uh, you know, put the fire out. There was a lot of smoke damage, basically. But the building itself survived. And uh, so all we had was smoke damage. But all the product was smoke damage. Mm -hmm. um, so we couldn't sell it. So, so we went, what are we going to do with all this stuff, you know? And so, I, so we thought, well... It's still edible. There's nothing wrong with it. So I said, well, let's give it away. So let's find a few of our good customers and let them know <laughs> that we've got all this stuff to give them. And so we told maybe six or seven people to come down, pick out a few things. And so they came down, started picking things out. But, you know, small town. Next thing I know, I had a riot. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there were, the, there were, there, you know, I had to limit who could go into the store, how, <laughs> how many people could be in there at once. Yeah. And the next thing I knew, there were people coming with all their friends. <laughs> oh, no. One woman had marshaled all the homeless people. Oh, wow. And, and they got a hold of all our shopping carts and they filled them all up. And it was like uh, 20 mule team borax going down, <laughs> going down the street with grocery carts full of stuff. It was just amazing what, what happened. I wish we had photos of that. That would have been yeah. yeah. One of the few things that sticks in your mind as you get yes, older. Yes, definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. So, and then, so then we're going, okay, we're out of the business. What do we do? And, you know, we had the lot down there. and So our grocery wholesaler, which was West Coast Grocery, and they actually had a branch in Ketchikan. Mm -hmm. um, so they jumped on it because they were trying to get more customers in Alaska. So they were developing stores in Alaska. They had already built one in Wrangell, and uh, I think they built one in um, Juneau or Haines. Anyway, they had built a couple stores already in Alaska. In fact, they, Gavora had built a store up in Fairbanks through them. And what they did was they had a store development department, and uh, so... They, they came to Ketchikan, they found a contractor in Tacoma, uh, they arranged for bank financing. Uh, we got a, a small business administration uh, loan for the equipment and inventory, and we also got an SBA lease guarantee. And what the lease guarantee did was, well, we owned the land, so we leased the land to the developer. And and then we leased the whole thing back. Mm. So they had a lease on the land for I don't know twenty years. Oh or something. my gosh! And then we leased the building back, you know, and the SBA guaranteed the lease. Wow! So that's how it got financed. In other words, the banks weren't taking a whole lot of risk on this deal. Mm -hmm. uh, the equipment loan, there was like a it was two hundred and twenty thousand dollars at the time. Um, was a 90% guarantee. So the bank that financed this, Tacoma Bank, said, okay, well, we want 10% put into our bank. So we had to, we had to come up with $22,000 to put into a CD in their bank that we could not touch. 
In other words, they weren't taking any risk at all to loan us the money. So that's how we got it financed. But, you know, that put us in business. And, uh, and it was 10 times the size of the stores that you had been operating previously. Well, maybe five times. Five times yeah. at least. It yeah, was okay. A lot yeah, it was a lot bigger. And it was our first experience with, you know, what you would consider a supermarket. You know, we had no clue. I mean, other than standing at the cash register and selling things right. uh, and caring out for people, we had no clue how you actually operate a store that large, you know, bringing in containers and unloading things on pallets. We didn't have a loading dock at the old right. store. <laughs> We use hand trucks to get it in and out of the building. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, now we had a loading dock, and we had stuff coming in on pallets, and uh, uh, it was a real learning experience. Yeah. And, and, and then, then the architect who designed the store obviously didn't have a whole lot of experience either. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it was really, um, you know, and luckily I was young, because I, otherwise I would probably had a heart attack or a stroke. <laughs> The, the first major thing we discovered was the, well, the way they built our van well and loading dock, once you backed the container in, you couldn't open the doors. Oh, no. <laughs> so then, okay, we can't open the doors, so we have to open the doors before we back the container down oh, into the geez. van well. And then it, stuff would fall <laughs> out. Fall out. <laughs> So, okay, now what do we do? You know, so we got these pallet jack, these long poles that you would stick in there, you know, and try to make them tight enough so stuff wouldn't fall out of the van. We did that for, I don't know, a year or two before we went, okay, can we just extend the loading dock out beyond the building? Oh, gosh. So then we could open the door. So we actually ended up doing that. The other thing was, the draining system, they just had a little six-inch pipe at the bottom of the van well. So whenever it rained hard, you know, it rained a lot harder than six-inch yes. pipe. Mm-hmm. So the van well filled up with water. So then we'd have a swimming pool in there. And, uh, <laughs> that was something we battled, I mean, all the way up until. Not, it didn't fill up all yeah. the way, but, I mean, really. What yeah. we ended up doing is just pouring more concrete in there and made it higher. <laughs> yeah, so it, wouldn't, so it wouldn't fill up as yeah, much. <laughs> and, you know, I was sure that we were going to have salmon being raised in our van well, you know, and then we'd have to deal with fish and game every time we brought a van in. Oh, yeah. my goodness. And then yeah. the other thing they did when they built the building, they put, um, we didn't have a built-up roof. You know how you have tar roof with tar papers and tar and everything keep it from leaking? Well, what they did instead, they had uh, four-by-eight panels on the roof. On one side, it was laminated, Theoretically waterproof, mm, and then theoretically, yeah. <laughs> and then between all these four by eight panels, they put I don't know would would an amount maybe to duct tape or something between the cracks. <laughs> so after the first winter came, and the store was leaking everywhere. Oh yeah, I know yeah, that's okay. hilarious. That's all right, story. yeah. So. Um, as you can tell, this this goes way beyond just this hour that we have for First City Forum. Um, I think ultimately we are just really so thankful and appreciative of the Ketchikan and all the community and not just, you know, people here, but we served Metlakatla and people over on Prince of Wales. And Joe was telling yesterday that people would actually skiff over um, sometimes from other 
places yeah. for story. So there's, you know, we just have, we're just so appreciative of the love and the support. And we miss everybody, genuinely. This has been so not just informative, I knew this was going to be informative, but this is, you guys need a biography or something. <laughs> like, this is so interesting and emotional. I teared up a couple times. <laughs> you guys um, definitely yeah. did. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap it up then. Thank you, Bill and Catherine, for sharing that with all of us. I'm sure everybody really appreciated that because yeah. I know Tatsu has meant a lot to this community. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Brittany. We are going to... Wrap up. You will have Joe Williams tomorrow for First City Forum. It's Brittany Rickard. We'll catch you later. Catch you can.